Good morning, good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. Boy, hope you all are excited about today. I'm having one of those days where it's just a good morning and I'm excited, get to, got to meet some new folks, get to visit with some folks that I've known for a while and it's just great to be around God's people this day and that we come together, not as just strangers, but we come together united by the Spirit of God who dwells in us and we call him our God and our Father and he's worthy of our praise and our worship, amen? Well, I'm glad we're awake <laughs> this morning. Hey, I wanted to share with you all, I don't know if you heard, but we did our food drive where we were uh, gathering together Chef ORD and macaroni and cheese for kids to uh, feed the kids program. If you're not familiar with Feed the Kids program, it is a program that during the school year, the children that meet certain qualifications because of their family's not able to earn enough or gather food, we provide backpacks, what we used to call them backpacks, we really provide them food so that they would have food over the weekend. We understand from an educational standpoint that children who aren't well fed cannot study and learn as well. And so part of the design behind the Feed the Kids is to provide them food over the weekend. And they, there's quite a process. Uh, they go through uh, their counselors and people that know the, uh, what their situation is. And so throughout the year, for about 30 weeks out of the school year, every week we, a group of uh, people get together and they bag these food, this food. They take them to the schools, the uh, counselors. They distribute this, these, this food to our, to our students. Well, part of our food drive was helping to provide food for those kids, and we do this through Common Ground Network here in, in Mansfield. And so we, we gathered a little over 300 of those Chef RDs and mac and cheese. Praise God for that, amen? Thank you for, for doing that. But just to give you a scope of about how much does that uh, provide for our kids in need in our own community, they're all right here. Like we provide food for both uh, Martha Reed and J.R. Jail Boren, which are the two close elementary schools right here to our church. And we've done that every year for a few years now where we just automatically take care of those and some others in the community. But just to give you an idea, every week we bag about 300 bags for kids in our community. So what we gather was for one week and we have 30 weeks. I just want you to realize the magnitude that of, of the need that is in our own community. So please keep, keep, keep bringing it, keep giving it. Uh, I know our WANAS program right now is gathering uh, some of the mac and cheese and the Chef RD. Uh, if you still want to, if you were planning on it and now you don't see the signs up, you can still bring it, drop it off on a Sunday morning or on a, um, uh, during the week, during the office hours, Monday through Thursday. And we'll get it over there to the, to the Feed the Kids. But uh, during the summer, they do, it, they do enough for literally seven days a week. They try to provide for kids in these situations that they find themselves. So it's, it's a continual process. It's something we do uh, collectively as churches in our community. I just wanted you to know what it was about and how, really how many, kids are, how many kids are served every week. It's, it's really a blessing. And it's a blessing to know that some of these kids and the counselors, you'll hear some of the stories and all. Uh, because of HIPAA laws, we don't know the kids, but we're able to be there, build a relationship with the schools, and, then, and Lord willing, be able to minister to the schools as well. So thank you so much. Uh, take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in that, in that uh, book this morning. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12 and following. 
And it's called Salvation Workout. It's kind of what the term we came up. I'm, I'm not sure uh, what that exactly means. You all are going to, uh, this morning, find yourselves uh, kind of going back and forth in some of, the, some of the terminology that takes place there. But I know after last week, we celebrated Easter, the resurrection of Christ. And, and if you know Christ, and many of you do, if you know Christ and you're trusting in him for your salvation, you have a new life. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, what's that life supposed to look like? So many times we highlight God in our lives. And so many times we add him on a weekly basis to a worship time. We may acknowledge him in the times of need. But is there, is there a walk? Is there something that is going on in this life? And this morning, I think that the Apostle Paul does address that in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, it was interesting as I began to look at this passage how many scholars said this is one of the more important passages in the scriptures that helps us. It's such an important passage to understand not only how God is growing us, but our responsibility as believers. How do we conduct ourselves? In fact, if you will, let's just read it and starting in chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, now, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in that day, so that, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When you look at this first passage back in verse 12, it says, therefore, and it's referring back to the context. And it's really important to understand the context. I like, I'm a big picture kind of guy. I like the bird's eye view and how all the different things fit together. So sometimes you get that more from me. And so one of the, the aspects of this passage is to understand the context. If you go back to chapter one and verse 27, you'll see that he, the Apostle Paul is telling them to, to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And in this idea of conducting themselves, that there's a way in which we ought to live our lives that reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ, that reflects who we are as God's people. It's a term I use over and over when I preach because I want us to understand we are the people of God. If you've received Christ in your life and you trusted in him, you are part of the family of God. So Paul tells them to, in, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, to conduct themselves, to be of the same mind, of the same spirit striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he, what he's telling them is that as, you, as a body of believers, as a believers there, as the saints, as he uses in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, as the saints there in Philippi, you're to strive together for the gospel, the faith of the gospel. That when we really look about our lives, it really is about the gospel. We're living in a day, God, dear people of God, where we get distracted really easy. Please be aware of that. But we're being called as believers to operate in such a way that we have the same mind, same purpose, and it's the faith of the gospel. And when you walk into chapter 2, verse 1 and following, he begins to talk about how they are to relate to one another. That they were to have the same mind uh, together, having the same love for one another. In fact, that's in verse 2 of chapter 2. 
In verse three, he tells, in, tells us in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Kind of an interesting countercultural thought today, isn't it? That we're actually to take, take into mind those that are around us and to be conscientious and aware of their spiritual well-being, being aware of what's going on in their lives. And Paul's saying, hey, consider them. In verse four, he says, look only, not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. And so he builds this in the first four verses there of, of, of giving this idea of unity, of striving together one, side by side for the faith of the gospel that as the body of Christ is to operate, we're to operate in such a way that we take into mind those around us in the spiritual well-being. If that seems foreign, Paul in, chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says that you're to have this same mind. What mind? The mind that Christ had. In fact, if you look at it in, in chapter 2 and in verse, uh, I think it's verse 6, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I find this statement very interesting in the context in which we're dealing. Because what Paul does is, is he's talking about this unity. In the church at Philippi, we know from chapter 4, there was a couple of ladies in this church that were not getting along. And it was creating issues within this church. And that they were to be of one mind, of one unity. Paul calls them to that. And he said, refers to someone within the church. He calls them a true companion to work this out, to bring this about that there would be unity. Unless you think that unity isn't possible, well, look at Christ. What did Christ do? He didn't hang on to what he considered his as a right that he was God. But he actually set it aside, relayed it aside. He emptied himself as the term in the text. What did he do this? And he became obedient. In fact, it says he humbled himself through obedience, even taking on the likeness of sinful flesh unto death, the death of a cross, which was, a, was the lowest form of death at that time. And so you see in this picture where Paul has been making this, this argumentation, if you will, about how we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and here our example is Christ even. Now he goes on and he talks about Christ will be elevated and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But then when we walk into our passage today in verse 12, he says, therefore, in light of that, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, in other words, they were known as kind of a life of obedience. He says, as you've always obeyed, not just in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He says, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For a long time, I ran from this verse. What does that mean? What? I thought salvation was always based on what Christ did, right? What does it mean, work out salvation? So let's talk about this verse for a minute. When you take that word work there, that word has the idea to cultivate. Um, boy, I'm 
going way ahead of my notes, so give me just a second to catch up. It means to cultivate or to carry out the goal to its ultimate conclusion. It's the idea of that you're to work towards something, that, it's, that it has a process, that there's a completion, there's something to be done. And he's using this term to cultivate this in your life. And then he says, work out. Now notice he doesn't say, work for your salvation. We know these are believers here. He refers to them in chapter 1, verse 1. He refers to them as saints, as those who are, who are set apart, those called out ones. We know they're believers because he calls them my beloved in verse 12. In this very verse, he calls them my beloved. So these are believers. So he's not talking about salvation in the sense of being born again. And then he says yours. He makes it very personable. So what is he talking about when he talks about this idea of salvation, working out your salvation? There's a, there's a term we use in, in the scriptures, and you'll find it a lot of times in the scriptures. This term is sanctification. We get, it comes from a root word of, a, of saints or set apart, or those that are set apart. It's this idea of set apart ones or set apart from something to something. And there's this picture whereby they are, they are being sanctified in this process of their growth. Now, I was trying to think about a way to, to just kind of describe this, because when we look at our sanctification, we kind of see three different aspects of it. And the first, and I'm going to use these stools here to try to draw this purse. The first is what we a lot of times refer to as a positional sanctification. This is referred to in the sense that in this place whereby when I prayed and I received Christ into my life, I was placed into the family of God. I was redeemed. My sins were forgiven. I stand in the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin that I might be made into the righteousness of Christ, right? So there's this picture whereby in Christ, in the, in the body of Christ where I stand this day, there is nothing I can do in the sight of, my, of God to make myself look any more righteous because Christ has done it all and he has delivered me and set me apart and he's placed me into the family of God. He's called me out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, and he's called me into the kingdom of light, and now, now I stand in the righteousness of Christ, and I call him my God and my Father because he is, and he alone is my Lord. Amen? So if you've received Christ in your life, you've been placed in the family of God, and this is where you stand Nothing can change that. Some people want to teach that we can lose our salvation. Some people believe that we would take this passage and try to say that we have to work for our salvation. That's not what the text is saying. That's not what the text is talking about. We're already, what it's talking about, we're already in this position. Paul is writing to believers who have already been placed in the body of Christ and resting in Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing else today. I don't have some card that I'm going to get to heaven and show that I punched it out enough times because I did enough good things that God's going to let me into heaven. I don't have any of that. You know what I have? I have faith. And I'm taking God at his word to do what he said he would do. And he said that those who believe in his son will not be ashamed. Amen? All right. And so then there's another aspect to our sanctification that we refer to. We use different terms for this. I'm going to use this for the sake of the text this morning. And what I'm trying to bring out is the idea of a, of a growing sanctification. One of the texts, that, the scriptures that caught me so much at one time was, was uh, 2 Peter 3.18. It says, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that idea of growing in grace just blew me away. I always thought grace was just something we had. It was given to us. 
but now I'm supposed to figure out how to grow in grace? There's to be this idea of, of developing in our lives, and, and it's not just a passiveness for the believer. There's an active aspect, aspect to our walks with God. There's this idea whereby, and that's what this word is, to cultivate in my life what I am in Christ. And so when Paul uses this term and he starts talking about working out your salvation, he's talking about taking who you are and working it out into your life. Now, we're going to address it here in a minute. And I'll tell you why this passage is so important. Because you're going to sit here and go, hey, there's a lot of things in my life I just can't conquer. You're right. There's a lot of things in my life I can't conquer because it's God that works within me, right? But there's an understanding that in my life and in my walk, there is to be an active participation in cultivating spiritual growth in my life. And dear people of God, this is just as important. In fact, I would argue even more important than all the money we save, than all the businesses we build, than all the affluence we try to gain, all the ways that we try to make ourselves look good in this world, physically, emotionally. This is the most important aspect of your life, to grow spiritually. Because as you do that, all these other things begin to fall in place when you listen to God's word and you begin to incorporate it. So this second aspect, there's, a, there's this idea whereby we're immediately placed into the, the family of God. There's this, there's this idea that Paul is teaching us even today to cultivate, to, to grow in our sanctification. And then the third one, this is the one I can't wait for. We, some call it ultimate, some call it glorification. It's the picture that one day Jesus is going to come, the trumpets are going to sound, and the dead in Christ will rise, and we'll receive our glorified bodies, and we'll be with him. He'll wipe away our, our tears. He'll wipe away the sin, and we'll be in complete unity with our God. No more sin. No more unrighteousness. There we'll stand in him and who he is, and we'll be complete in that time. So these three aspects often come out when we talk about our salvation. We sometimes use these, these interchangeably when we shouldn't. Sometimes we, 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 we refer to this aspect of growing and, and cultivating our, our spiritual growth, and we kind of add this aspect, well, Jesus does it all, I don't do anything. Well, that's not true. There's a responsibility on our part as we come to Christ in how we ought to live our lives. We cannot continue to ignore unrighteousness in our lives. At some point, we have to begin to address it. Does that mean that on, on this earth, I will hit this point of perfect righteousness? I don't think so. I have this body of sin that I'm waiting for Jesus to come someday and to take it away and to, to give me that glorified body. And then in him, will I know completely, truly, all of his righteousness in my life. But I have a responsibility here. Just as Jesus, he put aside what he was in his divinity 
in order to take on the likeness of sinful flesh. And he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death. Well, there's this picture in our lives that now we know what God's truth is, as being a part of his family, being a part of, of the family of God and what Christ has done, that we now begin to recognize iniquity in our lives and we begin to put it off. We recognize it and we consider it dead. Man, I, there, isn't, there isn't time. There's just not enough time that goes between times that I mess up in my life where I recognize some deceit in my own heart, some iniquity in my own heart, maybe an anger towards somebody, maybe a, a bitterness that has risen and I didn't, I didn't catch it. Maybe a way where I only thought about myself and not somebody else. I'm really good at that, by the way. And as you begin to recognize it, you put that off and you go, I'm, that's not who I am in me anymore because God has made me a new creation. He has given me his spirit who dwells within me and he's given me and empowered me in order that I might walk in righteousness. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, this is what he's talking about in our lives, in our walk, as we cultivate that relationship we have with God. It isn't just that we celebrate the resurrection. Hallelujah for that Jesus is alive and he's alive today. To God be the glory and the praise forevermore. Amen, amen. But at the same time, I don't just walk away and say that. I now begin to live it in my life because Jesus has delivered me from my sins. Do you see it? So when he tells us to walk, to work out our, fear, our salvation of fear and trembling, what does he mean? Fear and trembling. It has the idea, we looked at the fear of God a few weeks ago in, in the study on the blessed life. It's the idea of a deep respect, a reverence is this idea of fear. But trembling also has an important aspect. Let me, let me there's some really neat words that we went with it. Um, it's the idea of serious caution a watchfulness against temptation. It's a self-distrust. I don't always trust myself. There's certain things I stay away from because I know I don't trust myself and how I'm gonna respond because I know I'm not gonna respond in a way that reflects who God is in my life. And I tremble in those times because I don't want to disappoint, offend my God who has delivered me. His son who became sin that I might be made in the righteousness of Christ because of what he has done for me. So when he says work out your salvation in fear and trembling, he's saying there should be a watchfulness on our parts. There needs to be a reverence for God and understanding who he is and who we are and a watchfulness in our lives. Now look what he goes on and he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling and now he explains why he's telling them to work out this salvation. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is why this passage is so important because you have both here our responsibility. That's why I say our salvation, our walking, our life is an active participation. It is not a passive one. We have a responsibility, but it's also at the same time a very strong awareness that the things that gotta change in my life, I can't make them happen, that it, I am total dependence and faith in God to work them out in my life. But I have to step out in faith to believe that. So when I come up to a situation 
And I, I'm in a situation here and I have two choices, tell the truth or lie. I'll try to keep it really simple, right? Tell the truth or lie. I know if I tell the truth, I'm gonna look bad. What am I doing? I'm protecting myself. Is that what God's called me to do? God tells us what? To speak truth. He tells us to speak truth in love a lot of times. Our words are to be seasoned with grace. All of those things, all those things I'm still learning how to do. So I can either speak truth or I can lie. Well, God has some very strong things to say about lying, doesn't he? Does he mince words about it? Is he unclear? Does anybody know what God, uncertain about what God's attitude is towards lying? So now you have a choice. Are you gonna lie and preserve self to determine your way, your path, your purposes? Are you gonna lie or are you gonna trust God and tell the truth? You see, we go through that all the time. And sometimes it's, it's, it's the consequences aren't great, but we go through that. And so Paul is telling them to work these things out in their lives and that you begin to, to trust him. In fact, the word there where it says, for it is God who works, it's not the same word as cultivate that was used when he said work out your salvation. It's a different word. You know what the word is? Energize. That God empowers, he enables us to, to overcome those things in our lives. I've seen it in my life. I've, I remember um, a guy, this guy that I named Al was his name. And Al was, you know, 30, 40 years older than I was at the time. I was pretty young in my faith and I was really excited. I was wanting to learn how to follow God and to live in righteousness. And I was like, I looked around and who was the guy that I saw do that more than anybody else? It was Al. So I used to take Al out to lunch and Al would always say, well, when you make more money than I do, I'll let you pay. So, I, so he always paid. But, he, but man, I, I just would pick his brain. I'd be asking him questions about his walk with God over and over because I wanted to grasp what he knew about my God and how he walked with, with, with my God. And I'll never forget, I must have annoyed him. Finally, one day he looked at me and he said, he said, Greg, you need to understand something. I've been walking with God 30, 40 years longer than you have. And there is truth to that. And now as I've gotten to the age about where Al is, and I look back, he's so right. I have these 30, 40 years of working out and cultivating in my life the gospel, setting apart. You see, what God is doing is he's calling us out of sin. He's calling us out of darkness. And he's calling us to himself. And when we respond to the gospel, he's setting us apart. And he's setting us apart unto himself when that day would come, when Jesus will come in that day, that glorious and wonderful day may it be today. And when that day when he comes, he is setting us apart unto that day. And in that process, we are walking with him and we're cultivating in our lives spiritual growth. And God is enabling, enabling us and empowering us to overcome. But let me tell you something. I could have spent the last 30, 40 years not even caring about my spiritual condition and would have no idea what I've just talked about. Where are you? This is why sometimes you meet a guy who's, who's uh, maybe been a believer five years and you meet someone else that's been a believer for 40 years and you look and you go, wow, that young believer seems to have more in concept of what's going on spiritually than the 40-year-old believer. 
Because that believer's just sitting there, I'm saved, I know I'm going to heaven, and they never cultivated in their life spiritual growth. Dear people of God, let it not be named among us that are here this morning and those online. May we be a people that are cultivating, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in us both to will and to do. He begins to change our whole perspective, our whole thoughts about our lives and how we walk. I, I see sin so, so much more differently now than I used to. There's things now that I look at and I realize why God hates it so much. When I start seeing how it has divided families and destroyed people's lives and it's destroyed others who, who, who incorporated sin in their life and they never begin to address, they never begin to incorporate it and cultivate it in their life. And God will empower them. God will work through them. It says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You know what God's intent, his goal for you as he sets apart, as he sets you out from the world, from sin, as he sets you apart unto himself and his ultimate goal that you might be like his son, that you would look like him, that you be conformed to his image. And then he says in the very next verse, he gets really practical. He says, do not do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He brings us a negative here. He's telling us this is something we shouldn't be doing. He's telling us it's, a, it's something that should not be named among the people of God because it's not proper. It's not proper that we would have these things of, of grumbling, and literally the word grumble is kind of, a, it's kind of a low, just mumbling. I'm really good at grumbling, by the way. I don't know about the rest of you. I'll sit there, and I'll kind of start walking away, and I'll be talking. I know usually I say it out, but I, but I grumble. You know what happens when you start grumbling? You know, let me tell you what happens. As you grumble, you begin to create within your own heart, your own, own being, a discontent. Sounds like something's taken off over there. If you, I don't know, just like somebody coming through that door. But anyway, sounds like a discontent. Sounds like what happens ends up, ends up happening to your heart as you grow impatient. You don't trust. You become grudging and murmuring and you begin to complain. You become dissatisfied, resentful, displeasure, annoyed at things. Is there somebody that just annoys you every time you see them? You probably are grumbling about them. And that's what Paul's addressing here. He's, we're to be thinking of others. The word literally has the idea of a secret displeasure in the heart, a discontent that leads to criticism. Hey, our adversary, Satan himself, accuses us enough. We don't need to accuse each other, do we? But then he doesn't say grumbling, just grumbling. It says questioning or disputing is really the, the idea of that word. It means the idea to, dis, to debate or disagreement. Express, expressing distrust. That's what happens when you begin to debate and argue with somebody. You become in disagreement and you don't trust them anymore. And that shouldn't be part of the body of Christ, should it? Paul warns that if we do not stop grumbling, if we do not stop what is under the surface, it will become an open dissension and debate 
We must not be party to such a spirit in, our, in the body of Christ. It's not proper. That's why Paul's telling us to work these things out. And it is possible. It is possible to overcome these things. It is possible to have disagreement with someone and to believe something strongly and yet still be in unity. Why? Because of who we are in Christ. The way that we treat one another. Because when we start grumbling and we start growing criticism, when we start debating, you know what we do? We, we start going and getting as many people to agree with us as possible. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves talking to this person, that person, that person, and, and we create division. And go read. Just take your concordance or search the word division, and you'll see what God thinks of division within his, within his church. He's never happy with it. We, as a people, have to work out our salvation, and we can work through those things because we are unified, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as we work out our salvation, we figure out how to work through those things, not in distrust, not in disagreement, not in dissension, not in disconnect, but in unity because we are a people of God, unified by the Spirit of God that dwells within us. We need to grow in our faith in this way, that we may be, what does he say, blameless. It literally means undeniable of purity, an undeniable life of purity. It's the idea whereby you cannot deny that this person has purity of life, purity of intent. Man. Breaks my heart, the world's perception of the church today. And how many of us were more worried about fighting for what's right than to express that in a blameless way. He says innocent, purity of motive, integrity. It's, in fact, one person called it an inexperience with evil. Have you ever met somebody who has inexperience with evil? Just, be, just hang around some young children. It's amazing how they look at each other. It's amazing how they treat each other. They act immaturely sometimes because we have this sin body. But it's amazing. It's amazing. We need to be innocent about the way we deal with one another. And then he says, children of God. You know, <clears throat> I'll just say this. It, when, when God takes me on or whatever and I breathe my last breath, I hope the one thing you remember that you heard from me more than any other time, you heard these words. You are the people of God. We need to understand that, that we are God's people. We are children of God. We belong to him. He's our father. Whether I'm standing here or sitting out there, we're all part of the family of God. We are his people. Man, we got to reflect him in a way that we conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Why is the gospel so important? Because it involved his son and then what his son did through his death, his burial, and resurrection, he demonstrated God's love towards us. He made it known. He declared it. That's why the, the cross is so difficult for some. They reject it. But God was demonstrating his love towards us. And then it says, without blemish, that was a term that was used above reproach, with use of an unblemished sacrificial lamb. Without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, that word crooked 
is where we get that term where the medical term of like a curvature in the, in the, in the back, uh, scoliosis, I believe, is where you have the, the twisting and it begins to curve. And then when you use the word twisted, it intensifies the picture. And the more and more that people move away from the message of the gospel and they move their direction, they become more and more twisted in their way of thinking. And by that, I don't mean that they're horrible people. They've been created by God. But by that, I mean they become twisted in that they don't understand the purpose for which they have been created for. And they reject their creator. They reject the God who loves them. They reject the God who died for them. They reject the God who rose again for him. And they go on their own way and their own path, the very crux of iniquity the very definition of sin. And he says, a crooked generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Shine as lights. I love this picture. It's literally luminaries. It's a picture of the stars in the, in the darkness of night and they, and they shine out that what you are here for, dear people of God, that you receive Christ in your life is that you shine out in a, in a world that has lost its way. Do you realize for the first time in the history of America, less than 50% 50 of the people attend church now? You know that? You know something else? When I was a kid, I can remember when people, you met somebody new, you know one of the first questions you always asked them? Where do you go to church? Why? Because everything was shut down on Sunday because everybody expected you to go to church. Nobody asked that anymore. Why? Because most people believe you don't go to church. Most people believe that you do, you're not involved. That's why you're seeing more and more school programs and activities being planned on Sunday because people aren't going to church. Well, why worry about it? Our country has changed. And if there was ever a time to shine as lights, it's now. If there's ever a time to incorporate and cultivate spiritual growth in our lives that God enables us and empowers us that we might walk in righteousness, that we might be distinctive in a world that is dark, in a world that has grown its own way, whereby it calls sin right and right sin. If there's ever a time to make a distinctive demonstration of what you believe, it's now. I was teaching the college kids a few years back and I was talking about what was coming, and we, I forget how we got on the subject. I was talking about what was coming. And I'll never forget, I said, made the comment to them. I said, man, I really feel for you guys. You guys, in the future, you're going to have to deal with some really difficult things. And you know what one of them said to me? And they all agreed afterwards. But you know what one of them said to me? They looked at me and they said, it just means we get to live our distinctive faith even more. Because they understood that to live for Christ is going to distinguish them in this world. Dear people of God, if you're known more for your politics than for Jesus, I'm concerned. If you're known more for your, your work and your hobbies, if you're known more for what you, what you accomplish and your affluence than you are for Jesus, I'm concerned. Because when you begin to work out and this becomes a priority in your life, your own spiritual growth, and you're taking an active measure in your spiritual growth, not a passive one, but an active one, and you begin to grow, you will distinguish yourself in this world. And you will shine as lights, as luminaries in this world. And he says there, the very last thing there, he says, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast. Holding fast. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify God, glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen? Dear people of God, may his spirit move in your hearts to instruct, to guide, and to lead. Soften your hearts to the truth of God's word that you may grow in faith. Let's pray. Father God, just in move among us. May your spirit move. May your spirit instruct. Maybe, Father, we've grown complacent in our walks with you. Maybe we've gone to a place, Father, that isn't, isn't healthy. And as a result, Father, we find ourselves drifting rather than cultivating spiritual growth. We become passive, maybe, Father. May your spirit move among us and, and, and instruct us and teach us. Maybe we've grown passive, Father, towards you and your work in our lives. May your spirit touch our hearts and show those areas. May, Father, you lift us up and you move in our hearts to such a way that we might grow and be more and more like Jesus. Let us not be complacent, Father. May we understand that when we walk out into this world, we are lights of Jesus. We are part of the family of God. It isn't about us. It isn't about our own ways, our own accomplishments, our own attainments, but it's about Jesus. And that, Father, you give us opportunity through those things to be lights in this world, but let us not switch them around. Let them not be the priority. Let our priority be to reflect who Jesus is. Have your way with us, Father, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.